Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. All right, our reading this morning is from Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, As it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. This fall is a big deal for the Charbonneau home, because for the first time in 11 and a half years, we have all our kids in school. It's amazing, guys. It's fantastic. I, it's, it's funny because I remember the first day we dropped off our eldest at school. I remember walking her to her classroom, making sure she found her desk, having this long, drawn-out series of hugs and kisses and goodbyes, and then going to the car and bawling my eyes out. Do you want to know what happens when you drop your third off at the school? You are rolling up to the school, and you slow down. That's enough. You slow down. Tell the kids, just go ahead and open up the door. Just tuck and roll. You can make it. It's fine. Uh, It's very different the third time around, but we're excited about this new phase of life. After the first day, though, I did ask all the kids one question, and it was like my biggest concern, especially for our youngest, and the question was, did you make a friend? I really didn't care about, like, school or anything like that. I just wanted to, like, did you feel alone? Did you make a friend? Because I know that making friends is not always easy, even as adults. Maybe even, like, especially as adults, making friends is not easy. People sent me this meme uh, countless times recently, and it was, uh, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. I I understand that. I agree with that. Because it's a hard thing to find your people. That's why it's so easy to become head over heels when you actually find some sort of community. And as adults, usually we find our community through the people we live near or maybe the people we work with. But I've also seen again and again that people also find a sense of community with their shared hobby, which is what we just shared here. We have some people that do CrossFit, and that's their community. And I don't know what they do because I never have been, never will do it. I imagine them just flipping over oversized tires and getting ropes and doing this with it, and then probably some of them brag about cold plunging afterwards. I don't know. I'm never going to know. But there's that community. Then you have the cyclists. I know some of you over here, you wear your like futurist like spandex, and you cycle around town, then you go to coffee shops with your tap shoes and... You know, you show off your bod, that's fine, that's great too. Then you have, you know, Austin FC people, you spend your money on overpriced jerseys, you have dog people who go to coffee shops and say, my dog is really interested, my dog wants to say hi to you, which is not true, they don't want to say anything. And then there's the worst of the worst, which is pickleball people. They're, ugh, 
get a real hobby. Find a real sport, right? Uh, this is a little PSA, our pickleball community starting, our interest group starting today at 2 o'clock if anyone wants to join. It's powerful to find your tribe. It really is. And I'm going to use that term a lot, so I want to try to define it. What is a tribe? What is tribalism all about? Tribalism is this, a social identity built around the power of sameness. So tribalism is when you get in a community and there's the sense of inertia towards sameness where you actually find yourself getting squeezed into some sort of mold. We get into that community and along the way there's a sense of pressure towards conformity and that is either around what to believe or how to act or like what's important for all of us. And the eventual fruit of tribalism is not only like what are we about but also who are we against Tribalism takes something that's hardwired for us as people and has a tendency to become something really, really destructive. Building off of last week's message, for me, tribalism is the broad path that leads to destruction. The power towards sameness we've seen can wreak havoc in our world and in our own souls. Think of the undertow of tribalism that's stoked even more nowadays by the algorithms that that feed our social media and our obsession with news that seems to be just throwing gas on the fire against us versus them mentality. And you all know this. You experience this. This is where we live. That tribalism built on sameness is not just also out there. It's also at work within the church. We see how even the church can break off in different forms of sameness that there are certain, certain tribes within the church around certain types of worship or doctri- doctrinal statements or dogmatic points of view or, or a church that can has a tribalism around a, any sort of social issue where to belong you must believe like we do. I met someone at a, re- a wedding recently and when they found out that I was a, patter, a pastor, this woman's first question, first question about you, the Vine, was, did your church mandate masks during the pandemic? Like that was like the most interesting thing they could ask about our church. And you should see in her face when I said, we actually stopped meeting altogether, <laughs> like out of care and concern for each other. And then, yeah, then we brought in the masks. And her kind of blank look at me was uh, over, overcome by her husband whispering into her ear, honey, remember, we are in Austin now, right? <laughs> That look in her face was her mentally moving me from her tribe to that tribe, right? And we probably have experienced that in our own lives in many different ways. Because the force of othering and disdain is not just a worldly thing. It's sadly a churchy thing, too. I heard a comedian, Theo Vaughn, who I, I really assume he's not a Christian, but he said how much he loves seeing Christians get angry at each other and turn against each other. He calls it gracism. How a bunch of, church, a bunch of Christians are a bunch of gracists. I found that a lot funnier than you did. <laughs> uh. This morning, though, I hope to share that this movement towards tribalism and sameness uh, is not of the kingdom of God. It's not the narrow path that Jesus invites us into. It's, it's far from that. The narrow gate that Jesus leads us into is not sameness, but it's unity. And 
some people could interject, well, those are the same thing, right? Sameness and unity, but I actually think there's a great difference between the two. Sameness has this energy towards reproduction, has this energy towards conformity. In cultures of sameness, people come in and they're moved towards some particular model of correctness. It could be correctness of belief or theology or practice. But there's this movement towards conformity. On the other hand, unity takes distinct and unique people, members of community, and brings them into, into a particular kind of mutuality so that we aren't conformed into a certain model, but we actually are just, we're, we experience a sense of unity around belonging to each other because of something particular. So the sense of mutuality is there. And what's lacking is this energy towards conformity. Unity is at the heart of the kingdom of God. And what breaks my heart is that many people believe that the work of the kingdom is sameness. The work of the church is reproduction, sameness, having some sort of model that we are supposed to conform to as if God in all of God's creative beauty and glory made all of us unique and distinct Yet, the work of the church is for us to lose that distinctness, that uniqueness, that beautiful creativity to just be the same, losing how God uniquely made us. This conversation was upon Jesus' heart and mind in his final moments in this world. In John 17, Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. He knows that his time is coming to an end, that the cross is ahead of him. And in his final moments with his friends, he begins to pray. He wants to pray. He begins by praying for himself. Then he prays for the followers, his friends in that room. And then what I love is he begins to pray for all of those people who will follow Jesus because of these disciples' message. In other words, he's praying for the future church. He's praying for people like you and me and for churches like the vine. And this is what he prays for. This is John 17, starting in verse 20. My prayer is not only for them alone, disciples, but I also pray for those who believe in me through their message, being us, that all of them may be one, uh, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You see that beautiful union that Jesus is building from, what he wants to invite people into, the sense of being one with each other. I in them and you in me so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' lasting prayer for the church, for the future church, for you and I, was that we would experience unity. Unity that reflects the union that Jesus has with the Father. And for Jesus, this type of unity is essential if we are to bear witness to Christ's kingdom. Like it's, it's essential. It has to be there. We will be known not by our zeal, or our accomplishments, or our prominence, but by our unity. And if we are one, Jesus said, then the world will know that you, are, you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Like this is the proof of Jesus' kingdom at work. This is our primary message as a church, is our unity, how we love and care for each other. It all comes down to that. And if this is the case, then sadly, the inverse is also true. If unity is the great display of Jesus, nothing subverts our witness more than disunity. 
our disdain, our bitterness, our fracturing, our judgment within the church is anti-Christ. It's not a sign of Jesus' kingdom. And if we are to enter into the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean only that we have now right relationship with God, but we have different relationship with all of God's people, all of God's people as well. So if unity was so important, how, how can we experience it? Thankfully, so much of the letters that come after the Gospels, after the stories of Jesus, so much of those letters are to communities who are trying to figure that out. They are writings uh, of communities who are trying to figure out what does it mean to be the church, to be unified together. And one letter in particular I find very helpful. It's Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's good for us to remember, like, these writings are not books of the Bible originally. They are letters from a person to a church, like a particular person to a particular church. And this letter is written to a church, the churches in Rome. Yes, Rome in Italy, where there's the Colosseum and Great Gelato. Like, in that place, this letter was originally written. In Paul's day, Rome was a unique church. It was the hub of the Roman Empire, and it had over a million residents including many enslaved people, many people who immigrated to Rome just recently, and a significant Jewish population. And so there is like this really unique blending of cultures and identities. And in AD 49, Christians were banished from Rome. They were kicked out. Five years later, that decree was lifted, and all of a sudden the church was able to come out of hiding. And when this took place, the church was this really unique melting pot some Jewish followers of Jesus were there, some other recent immigrants from, to Rome, and also many Jewish converts were all there, and they were becoming the church together. And they did not share much in common, but they had this mutual devotion to Jesus and to the teachings of Jesus' way. This is what Jesus promised, though, that his kingdom would never be owned by a certain race or ethnic group or nationality, but that his claims as uh, the gospel of God would be for all people. His kingdom subverts all tribes that we tend to cling to. Now, this diversity might sound idealistic and beautiful, but as it is in this world, when there's racial and ethnic and religious differences, there tends to be conflicts that emerge. And what we find in this writing, in the, book, uh, to the letter to the Roman church, is that there's this temptation to move this community to sameness, to conform everyone to a certain model or mold in the midst of this diversity. And Paul is writing for the church to discover a different kind of unity. We find this also in chapter 14. There's a source of conflict. This is in Romans chapter 14. The source of conflict centers around two different issues. What food people can eat and whether or not they had to observe us these religious days, these holidays, and certain practices of Sabbath. Now, we might think these two items of food and religious days are a bit trivial, but what if someone told you you could never have bacon ever again? Would you have any issue with that? El Pastor tacos, gone. Flank steak, never again. Sirloin, never again. Like, this would be an issue. And then also, you had to practice all these religious days that your people never experienced before, never held before. Now, those are, could just be simplified issues, but it also, there's a deeper layer to it, because these weren't just cultural norms. Observance to these practices were fueled by how people read Scripture. So not eating certain food and practicing these certain days 
came from the Old Testament, came from the Bible. And so these people were beginning to, to debate around that. So one group might say, the Bible is clear. You can't pick and choose what we read from the Bible. There's truth, and you can't mess with that. And then the other group would say, the non-Jews, they would declare, well, don't you think God is doing something new? Didn't Jesus come to, to take that burden off of us? And you see these two tribes against one another. And don't you see that same framework at work in our world today, especially in the church? People who are claiming truth and uh, the sense of protection around the truth and those who are interpreting Scripture through a different lens, through a different way. One group is, is, is seeing their interpretation as the clear and simple and only way of seeing it, and the other is approaching it differently. And that kind of debate oftentimes breaks unity as it demands sameness. Paul here is calling through this letter that he calls these two issues disputable matters. He calls the church in spite of these disputable matters, that these aren't essential, these aren't high-level issues, they are secondary or third-level issues. He's calling them disputable matters, and in the midst of those disputes, Paul is calling the church to do something different, as we read in our scripture reading. This is in Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, the church in Rome, the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Paul is calling the church towards two primary actions First, to have the same attitude of mind as Jesus. And the second, to accept each other as Jesus did. Notice that both of these actions, both of these callings, are not just simply go and do this, do the right thing, have a better attitude, be accepting. No, both of these things are in relation to Jesus. Remember the attitude and the mindset that Jesus embodied. Remember that and embody it yourself. Or remember how Jesus accepted you and accept one another. It's in response to what Jesus has demonstrated that the church is called to treat one another. And if we do this, verse 6 says that we may learn to have unity of mind and voice so that we glorify God. God is uniquely glorified when we experience this kind of unity in the midst of a lot of disputable matters. We can glorify God with union of mind and voice. This is a passion for our church, the vine, that we discover a community not built on sameness, but unity. That we can have the same attitude of our minds, we use the word posture, that we'd have the same attitude of mind or posture that Jesus demonstrates. And that we would learn a radical acceptance of one another that bears the witness of Jesus' grace, inclusion, and love. That kind of church, a church built on unity and not sameness, we believe can glorify God uniquely and make Jesus' kingdom known in this world. So we see that unity is important to Jesus. We see that the early church had to go through the same wrestling match that we see in our day and age to pursue unity and not sameness. But how can churches like the Vine here in Austin in 2023 live that out? I find this 
framework incredibly helpful. Like many other things, uh, a couple years ago when we were exploring this conversation and uh, coming up with what we would call a third way, what we began to realize is this is actually not that unique or creative. There's a lot of other communities that are exploring this in very similar ways, which is really comforting for us too. Um, and this framework, I think, is really helpful for us to get our minds around how churches are approaching this today, how they're approaching unity and not sameness. So there are three different kinds of church is this, with this frame, framework is sharing. First, there's the bounded set kind of church. The bounded set church focuses on the boundaries of inclusion. These boundaries or fences are created around doctrine or dogma. They are theologically strict uh, reproducing in, with, in many ways. Similar to tribalism, bounded set communities are driven by sameness and protection. The boundaries are not only used for keeping insiders together, but they're also meant for boundaries of exclusion for those who do not belong, for those who might be deemed dangerous in many ways. So one church might have a fence around a certain dogma. Maybe it's around a theology, there's another fence that could be around a social issue. There's another uh, fence that could be around a theological framework. And to be honest, many of these churches uh, that have bounded sets, they pride themselves not only on the strength of their fence, but also often by how small that circle can be. Like, this is how certain we are. These, little, uh, these communities can have that certain, almost pride around the smallness of their circle. And uh, what we see, sadly, that these cultures can be very painful for some people because one day people felt like they were inside that circle, inside the fence, and then they find themselves maybe knowingly or unknowingly on the outside of the fence. And in subtle ways and not so subtle ways, belonging and, and acceptance is taught to be conditional. And so uh, there is this fence around that community. So that's bounded set churches. There's also boundless churches. This is a culture that rejects the exclusionary nature of bounded set communities. The drive is to minimize the difference in beliefs and practice. So they've, been, they've seen what can happen when people are separated uh, from, from a sense of belonging. So out of the compassion, they try to minimize those differences and extend both sense of belonging to other people. They tear down the fences. They create room to agree to disagree, which is all great things. But the, downs the downside of these cultures are it's a, there's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, there's very little for that community to hold in common. There's very little to gather around. So it tear, tears down sameness, but the unity is weak. Also, agreeing to disagree can also lead to kind of being flippant with each other's differences and points of views. So you come to me with a different point of view. I go, great, you're welcome here. But I'm not actually curious. I'm not actually like trying to figure out where you're coming from, what's going on, how can I help you, what, what in that I agree with. And so it dismisses other people's belief without true curiosity. So if the bounded set church has fences, the diagram for a boundless church is the absence of any fences. And so for me, the, the image is of being a, a kid playing soccer in a field, like going to a park and playing soccer in a field. And you start the game without ever saying like, all right, this is out of bounds. And this is out of bounds. So what ends up happening, you know, is two people chase the soccer ball and they just keep going and going. And everyone else is on the field going, 
what are we even doing here, right? Like it, it becomes silly at some point. Boundless communities uh, have this ten- tendency to have energy and clarity be lost. Now, I've experienced both of these communities. Bounded communities are the type of culture that are very clear what's true, what's heresy. Those churches are really, really good at reproducing themselves and training people into life and godliness. But the power towards sameness can also um, lead to a culture of exacting pressure and of pride and of judgment. And I've also seen communities that are boundless. The anything goes and all truth is subjective kind of cultures, those those communities tend to flounder and struggle because there isn't really much to rally around other than tolerance. And that's a hard thing to keep a community together with. Is this tracking with you all? Okay. Um, So the vine is trying to seek a third way that isn't bounded and it's not boundless, but there's a different way for us to live together. And that's being a center set community, a center set church. The culture that we seek to dismantle is the idol of sameness. We want to tear down the idol of sameness that oftentimes fuels the tribalism that we find in the church. Uh, And also, we want to move away from the fencing that excludes. But we also want to center ourselves around something greater. So a center-set church, the focus is not on the boundary or the lack of boundary. The focus is on the center and our mutual orientation to the center. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. The focus is not on the boundary or the lack of boundary. The focus for a center set community is on the center that we have in common and our mutual orientation to that center. So if people are oriented and moving towards the center, we belong to each other. We, we belong to each other um, regardless if I am a mile away from that center or a foot away. Like we're all centered around the same thing, moving towards the same center. There are centers centered towards Jesus for us. That is our center. Um, and we don't have any barriers of, exclu- of exclusion. But we are, have clarity around who we are after, what we are after, our mission in our culture, that we are going to put Jesus in the center of our church. We're going to invite everyone and anyone to move towards that center. This is the orientation that we have, and it hopefully it creates space for diversity and difference, creates space for empathy and curiosity towards one another. Rather than policing the fence, like many communities do, we use energy to encourage one another to reorient ourselves to Jesus again and again, and again, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Rather than condemning one another for our differences or rehearsing apathy for our differences, we take our differences towards the shared center and we see how the life and the teachings and the claims of Jesus form our beliefs and thus form our community. This also seeks to tackle the fuzziness of boundless churches that we have a sense of clarity around our shared identity. But the clarity is not on the problems of fencing. The clarity is put on our shared center. And so we have a refined unity that's released to invite everyone and anyone towards that, towards that shared center. And that's what we hope to be as a community. That's what we're seeking. We're not seeking sameness. We're seeking unity. This is what the church, our, our church, the Vine, is after. Not only as a community, but we also are inviting each of us, this is where it gets harder, 
each of, us, each of us to do this in our own lives, in our own personal lives, to remember Jesus as our center. In Paul's words, that we can go into this world with the same attitude of mind, the same posture that Jesus held, and the acceptance that Jesus gave as we go into this world and extend that to anyone and everyone so that God might be glorified in our community. And as a church, we will seek unity and not sameness. This third way, the center-set culture, in many ways is our sacred experience. It feels like a narrow gate. Um, But what I've realized more and more is that this is fulfilling what Jesus prayed for, that we could find a sense of oneness and unity with each other, one that demonstrates God's unity. I believe this unity is how the vine is bearing witness to our world. Even over the last two weeks, I have been reached out by three different communities. One, an Anglican priest here in town, a pastor in Boston, and a, like a really big megachurch out in California. All three of these communities are radically different. All have studied uh, what we have done with our third way and what we have shared. Just trying, these communities are trying to explore a different way. And I don't share that to like pat ourselves on the back or anything like that because we're still figuring this out. But I do believe, I share that because I think God is stirring up something else. We have seen the destruction that tribalism can take in our world, in our witness. And I think Jesus is raising up churches who want to seek unity and not sameness in spite of that tribalism. Churches that value empathy, mutuality, and compassion instead of our obsession with sameness. So let me close by sharing, as we have lived this out over the last three years, after this third way, I want to close by sharing what I believe is the secret to being a center-set church, what we've explored, what, we have, uh, what we've seen to be the, the, the crux of this, is the only way a church like this can flourish, the only way that we can sustain a, that kind of unity is to focus on the beauty and the power and the glory of, of, the, of the center. The only way to hold space for one another is to see how big and great and beautiful Christ is. The greater our view of Jesus, the more gravitational pull there is all around where Jesus is. The greater that we will see us being pulled towards the middle and towards each other because of what Christ is doing in our midst. Not only to Jesus, but to those whom the tribalism puts us against in our world, we find the sense of mutuality. And as that happens, all the different fences, all the different boundaries that we see at this world, they start to look silly in comparison to the bigness and the beauty of Jesus. And it's not that Jesus diminishes our differences, but we actually take those, those differences to those who are different from us, and we find that our differences actually don't define us. What defines us is our shared love, our shared devotion, and, and a shared unity around Jesus. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.